I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, so good to see you this morning. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Doug Payne, and uh, I would love to get to know you if, uh, if you stayed around and uh, afterwards and introduce yourself. I'll be around for a little bit, um, but welcome, welcome here, and uh, Merry Christmas as we, we're almost there to, you know, one, one week away the Christmas Day. We've been celebrating Advent, the, the incarnation as, uh, as God came to dwell with man. And uh, Josh talked about uh, our, our, one of our missions trips to, to Indonesia that we'll be taking this year to, to, to go and, and serve the least uh, and the poor. And that's what, that's what Jesus did for, that's what God did for us by sending Christ to this earth to come and serve, seek, and to save those who are lost. And so uh, we're really excited about that. We're also really excited to have Trevor and Nivia here. They're in the States for a few months. And if you don't know Trevor and Nivia, they're some of our global workers uh, in Asia. And uh, I encourage you to get to know them. If you have a free lunch this afternoon or through the week, I encourage you to get together with them and, and talk to them about what God's doing in their lives. And uh, we hope, not this summer, but next summer, to plan a trip back to India. And, and so be praying about that as well. Uh, maybe you can go this summer, or maybe you can go the next summer, or maybe you can go both. Um, but be praying about how God wants you to be on mission uh, to, to the nations. Uh, and one, one more thing I wanted to announce. Uh, we have these give boxes up here, joy boxes. I think they've been called in the past, and you can give online. I just want you to consider, if you have... Uh, maybe you have extra budget this year, or you decide at the end of the year to, to, to give a chunk that God has given you, uh, would you just consider the branch in your end of year giving uh, as we want to continue the gospel work here in Corvallis and beyond? And we don't, we don't want to keep this money or store this money up for ourselves, but to use it to advance the gospel and, and kingdom work here and, and in the nations. So just consider that as, uh, as you think about the end of the year. Uh, and, and your giving. And then uh, I'm just going to pray, and we're going to start into Nehemiah 13. Father, we, we come into your presence with thanksgiving and enter your courts with praise. Even as we started the service with lament, you never keep us there. 
our lament and our sorrow is, we're not meant to stay in it for long. We're meant to, with hope, look towards you. And we thank you for providing the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our, our hope, our only hope in life and death. It's our only comfort in life and death, that both body and soul belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And and you rule over us in such a way that not even a hair of our head can fall to the ground without you knowing it. And he, that great God who knows all and is in control of all and, and is righteous and just, you sent your son to be born of a virgin. To, to be born in the likeness of sinful man. Not a sinner yourself, but in our likeness. And you dwelt with us. And we thank you that we want to behold this wondrous mystery and give praise to you. And thank you for offering us hope in this little baby born in a manger, the dirty stall of animals, the king of the earth, the king of kings, the king of the universe came. And Father, we, we want you to tune our hearts to sing your praise. Our, our hearts have gotten out of tune this week, God. And, and we, we get distracted with, with things of this earth that, that cause, us, cause our vision of you to get blurry. We, we forget about you and the good news of the gospel our own sins and the, and the sins of this world, they've, they've caused us to, to not remember. So we pray that you, our great Christ, would tune our hearts to sing your praise. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would dwell with us as we open your word. And would you, would you unveil Christ? Would you make him clear to us and, and beautiful to us? We, we need you to do that. And as we sit under your word together as your people, we pray that it, your word would just reverberate among us and go out and, and reach those who have not, never heard about you. We pray that uh, this great salvation that you planned and that you accomplished and that you are now applying by your spirit would, would be our joy today. Would you restore us as you restored your people of old? God, we thank you for having a people here in this place. We thank you for the branch. And we thank you that you've established a witness here with us these last 10 years. And we know that it is only by your grace and your kindness and your goodness that we continue on. We, you have seen us through many dangers, toils, and snares. And we know, and by faith, we believe that in 10,000 years, we will be singing your praises again and again. We thank you that you have not left us alone, that we have each other, but we also have brothers and sisters in this very city that you have called out from darkness into light. And we thank you for the churches that uh, we get to partner with in, in this region, and we pray that you would bless them. We pray that you would bless all these gospel-preaching churches, that they would hold on to the gospel by your spirit. They would proclaim it, and it would build them up. We pray for Grace City, 
we, we pray for, for Christ Church, and, and we pray for Resonate, and God, we pray for Calvin, and we thank you for, for Christ Central, and, and we, we thank you for Northwest Hills. God, we thank you for the Cornerstone Church in Albany and, and our brothers and sisters all around that you have blessed us with. We pray that you'd give them joy, comfort, and joy as they think and sing and believe. Give them, give them hearts to believe that you have come and you're coming again. We pray that they would believe that being justified by faith, they will not be able to justify themselves by the deeds of the law. We pray that this great gospel would resonate among them and, and go out to our friends and neighbors and, and people in this place and beyond. God, we, we thank you for our, our nation. You've commanded us to pray for our government, and so we, we're thankful for who you have put in power and we know that um, you have given the sword to, for, to our government to, to wield it for good. And we pray that that's what they would do. We pray for our president and vice president. You give them wisdom, knowledge, and discernment to govern according to your will and purposes. You commanded all the kings of the earth to kiss the sun, and we pray that they would as well. We pray for our governor-elect, Tina Kotek, and we ask that as she comes in, that you would give her as well wisdom and knowledge, discernment to govern according to your will. And we pray that you would, by your grace, help us to live quiet and peaceable lives under her as governor. And God, we, we do pray that um, our, our nation would, um, would be ruled in a way that is good for your creation, all of your creation. God, we we pray also for the, the Nung people in Vietnam. We ask that they would repent of their sins and turn to you. We pray for the, the small number of evangelical Christians in that place, that you'd preserve them, care for them, and love them, and give them, shed the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit on all of them as they work and labor for your kingdom. God, we pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done in this place, right here, as it is in heaven. God, and I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer and our soon coming king. And may the zeal of the Lord of hosts, perform all of these things. Amen. So if you're not there, I invite you to turn to Nehemiah or scroll to Nehemiah 13, our last sermon in the series of Nehemiah, uh, the God who restores, rebuilds, and restores. And it's been a great companion for me personally. Nehemiah has been a great companion. Reading his memoirs has been a good companion through this season. I'm so thankful how God has revealed himself as kind and loving and uh, how, how his good hand has been on God's people all of their days. And I hope it reminds us that all of our days, the good hand of the Lord has been on us, even through our laments and our sorrows. But I want to ask you this question. You know, uh, when you are revived, 
When you come back to God, you're made aware of your sins and you confess your sins and you, you get into a habit of, of reading the Bible and praying and you feel close to God, what causes you to return to bad habits and sins? Everyone does it. Why? Is it a lack of willpower? Is it because we forget? Is it immaturity or, or someone else's fault entirely? Our inability to keep New Year's resolutions or kick semi-addictive habits, it could be a combination of all of these things. It could be a combination of forgetting and willpower, all of this stuff. But I think there's one underlying reason we don't necessarily think about. And one of the reasons is that our heart aches and longs for the way it's supposed to be. Our heart longs to return to the way things are supposed to be. And we look at our world and we look at our own hearts and we see things aren't just that way. An ache for a world that doesn't have disappointment or hurt or frustration. You know, nostalgia is a way that people try to get back to what they think was that way. Get back to a, 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 a past time in their lives or history and say, man, if I could only get back there, then everything would be great again. Nostalgia. Christmas time is dangerous for nostalgia. I find that in myself. Remembering back to good times, going to the, the candlelight service at Glendale Lutheran Church with my grandma and thinking, man, that was so good. It's nostalgia, friends. Fantasy is another way we try to escape this world. It makes us look to the future or a different world and long for the way that it could be. Oh, if it only could be like C.S. Lewis wrote about. If it only could be that I went into the wardrobe and when I went through, I got to Narnia. If it was just like that. Both of those extremes, nostalgia and fantasy, are extremely unhealthy for us, friends. And there are reasons, some of the reasons, why we return to our bad habits. Because longing for the way that it was, or longing for the way that it could be, is often an attempt to escape what is. And this is why sometimes we turn back to our own sins, we get easily distracted with the, the work of the Christian life that seems ordinary and dull. And we suspect that the simple means of grace, like attending to the preaching and reading of God's word, and tuning our hearts to sing God's praise and to prayer, we are tempted to believe those aren't enough. And if we could just go back to the way it was, or if we could just go future to the way it's supposed to be, everything would be good. So we go back to our sins, our bad habits, out of disappointment. But God reminds us in the book of Nehemiah that his good hand, the good hand of the Lord was on God's people. And even here in the anticlimax of Nehemiah and the people returning to their sins, returning to their bad habits, even then God's good hand was on them. And that to enjoy the blessing of the covenant, 
that they should give themselves to the ordinary means of grace, the simple means that God had called them to, taking care of the temple so they could take care of the worship, attending to to the rest of the Sabbath, and attending to uh, the the family covenant, the, the covenant of the community. And Nehemiah is calling God's people away from their sin and to enjoy him. And he's calling them to do that in, in these, these three points. Um, and I think they're, they're naturally broken up in three points. You can just see in verse 1, it says, on that day, they read from the book of the law. In verse 15, it says, in those days, I saw in Judah. And in verse 23, in those days, I also saw the Jews. So these three uh, sections are are broken up by this introduction. And then at the end of each of these sections, it's it's ended, concluded with a prayer. So we're going to take these three sections, and I've just just, uh, made the the headings, uh, tuning their hearts to sing God's praise, or attuned to praise, attending to rest, and praying in hope. Yes, chapter 13. (laughs) And as we go through this, as we work through this, we're going to see a pattern. And I just want you to notice the pattern in in each of these sections, 1 through 14, 15 through 22, and 23 through 31, uh, Nehemiah is addressing sin, he's instituting reform, and he's praying. Addressing sin, instituting reform, and praying. So just notice that pattern as we, as we walk through the story, beginning in, in uh, Nehemiah 13, verse 4. Now before this, that is, uh, before all of this happened, this was after the dedication of the temple and uh, dedication of the wall and service at the temple, like Sean preached about last week. Uh, before this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, frankincense, the vessels of the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem and then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for, for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers and brought back the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil in the storehouse. And I appointed a treasure, I appointed as treasurers over the storehouse, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, 
and Padiah of the Levites, and their assistants, Hanan, the son of Zechar, and of Mataniah. For they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. This is God's word. So you see in verse 6, Nehemiah takes a trip back to report to the king of Babylon, all that's been going on. In, in the beginning of the narrative, uh, King Artaxerxes and his wife sitting beside him said, how long is this going to take? And so they set a time. Well, apparently the time was about 12 years. And after 12 years, Nehemiah goes back and reports to the king. And then in his absence, Eliashib the priest clears out one of the rooms in the temple, one of the storehouses, so that he could give an office space or a residence, we don't know exactly, to Tobiah the Ammonite. Why? Because Tobiah is one of his relatives. And he makes, Tobiah the Ammonite makes way into the temple of God. If you remember back to chapter 1, 2, and even in chapter 4, Anytime Sanballat and Tobiah show up, you just know that there's going to be trouble for Nehemiah and trouble for God's people. And Nehemiah was, or Tobiah was an Ammonite. And, and, you, and you, we read last week, earlier in chapter 13, the Ammonites and, and, and the Moabites were for, forbidden to come into God's people, not because of a racial thing, but because of a religious thing. They they happened to, to not meet Israel with food, their cousins with food, as they, as they came out of Egypt. And not only that, they, they happened to, to hire Balaam to curse them. But God turned the curse into a blessing. And so God says, no more Ammonites, no Moabites, should intermarry or, or, or come in to be with my people. But Eliashib has a relationship. Eliashib the priest has a relationship with Tobiah. He's related to him somehow. And Tobiah, the enemy of Israel, goes into the storehouse and throws out all the things necessary for worship, all the things God had told them to use in the, in, in the worship space. And the temple was the place where God made his presence dwell. It was, it was symbolic at this point, but it was a place where true worship happened. So to let those who hate God and his work take up residence in that place was an evil thing. Eliashib's connection to Tobiah, Tobiah took precedence over God's command, over the command of God. And friends, all of us are tempted to disobey God because of our relationships or our connections to people. It's called the, the fear of man. I wonder, are, are you disobeying any of God's commands because of your relationship with people? Just search your heart and think about that. Some of us are not, but some of us are. Maybe it's because of your relationship with mom and dad. They have asked you to do something uh, that is not quite right. This is, I'm thinking more of adult people here. Is your relationship with mom and dad keeping you from serving God or obeying his commands? A relationship with a sibling. Maybe 
A relationship with a sibling has, has caused you to disobey God's commands in some, work, in some way. And God is calling all of us to tune our hearts to sing his praise. Where Eliashib uh, and Tobiah clean out God's house of the praises of God's people or the means to praise God's people, now God is wanting to restore the praise to his house and to his people. So the continual sin of the people required a response from Nehemiah. And you can see in, in 8 through 11 that Nehemiah doesn't mess around. He's, he's one of God's leaders. He comes in. It's a, it's a little jarring, actually, isn't it? Nehemiah comes in like a jilted girlfriend and throws all of the man's stuff out the window, you know? He's just, he's taking it out and he's throwing it and he's hacked off and he's ticked. And, and, and we're, we're left to wonder, like, what is going on here? Are, are we to be acting like that? When the process of Nehemiah learns more distressing news, not only had the enemy come into God's house and emptied it of God's praise, the Levites now had been sent back to their farms. The, the, the tithe, remember the people promised, we will give a tithe to the Levites so they can serve. And now the Levites don't have a tithe and no one can blame them for going back to their farms. How else were they going to eat? How else were they going to supply for their families? They have not been given uh, what was supposed to be devoted to them. And, and maybe it was uh, Tobiah who diverted some of that tithe. Maybe he was skimming off the top. We don't know for sure, but the people either had stopped giving or it had not been getting to the Levites. Nevertheless, the house of God had been neglected. And Nehemiah asked them, why has it been neglected when in chapter 10, you said we will not neglect the house of God? And so he not only cleanses cleans house, he rebukes the officials. And they respond in, in verse 12 by bringing the, the tithes into the storeroom. Friends, as, as you're rebuked either by God's word or a, a, a leader or a friend, a Christian friend, respond like the Israelites. You, you know what? You're right. Uh, we should bring the tithe back in. We promise to do this under a curse, and in verse 13, uh, uh, Nehemiah replaces Eliashib with, with trusty people. So we not only see that he, he calls out their sin, he addresses their sin, he starts to institute reformation. And Nehemiah is reforming by getting rid of bad leaders and putting in good ones. And in order for God's work to continue, God's people must take up the responsibility for worship. So who will step in the gap that is left? Who will step in? Friends, in a transient place like Corvallis, we often need people to step in the gap here. When people move on, who will fill in the gap when, when people leave in the, in the spring and the summer? Is God calling you? Maybe not, but maybe he's calling you to pray about it. Pray about who, who will supply the needs when, when, when people do move on. Or maybe he's asking you to reconsider whether you should just stay. Sometimes God uses just the people who stay and do the ordinary work of, uh, of, uh, of the church by staying. By staying for a time. 
and praying that, uh, God, how, how would you have me respond to this? But I don't know. I don't know if God's calling you to leave or stay. I'm just saying, can we pray about it? That's one of the ways God uses, uh, one of the way God works to, to restore his people it is through filling in the gap. Sometimes that means leaving and going somewhere else, but sometimes that means staying and digging in. So not only did Nehemiah call out their sin and institute reform, what he does in verse 14 is what he's done from the beginning. He prays. Short prayer. He asked God to remember him. I take this prayer, his prayer, not to be selfish, but dependent. You know, remember me, oh God. I, I, I've tried to do this. Uh, I can't do it on my own. Clearly, even my reforms, if I leave, the people are going to go back to their sinning ways. But please remember me, oh God. Should nothing of our efforts stand, nor legacy survive, unless the Lord does raise the house in vain its builders strive. Nehemiah's prayer is couched in covenant language, remembering. Remember his covenant language. God, please remember me. But also what Nehemiah has done for the house of God was covenant language. He, he, had, faithfully, he had faithfully served God's house. Remember me, O God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his priests. And Nehemiah uses covenant language, the things that I have done faithfully for your house. It's the word hesed. It's the word for God's covenant faithfulness, his covenant love. What Nehemiah had done for God's house, he had done for God. And the temple was thought to be where God was. So what Nehemiah did, he did for his covenant God. God seems to be turning the curse into a blessing here. God is giving, as God's people give themselves to God to deal with their sin. And Nehemiah prays, will God restore? Will God tune their hearts to sing his praise? Give yourself, brothers and sisters, a corporate worship. And secondly, he not only is calling them to attune to the praise, he's calling them to attend to the rest in verses 15 through 22. He says, in those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I had warned them on, that, on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all the disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut 
and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds were lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and I said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. This is God's word. The people again were, were sinning in verse 15. The very sin they promised under oath and a curse not to do, to violate the Sabbath day. They're directly, directly violating Sabbath laws by, by trading and selling and buying and working on, on this Saturday, the day designed for rest and worship. And God wanted the people to rest from their work. Why, why did he want that? Because he's arbitrary? No, because he created them to be dependent on him for their well-being. He created them to work six days and rest on the seventh. So Nehemiah addresses their sin. They're sinning against themselves, their own very well-being. The Sabbath day was given for their well-being, for their flourishing, for their good. And they could have thought they didn't need God. If they worked on Saturday or they just had a, a little bit of a side hustle so they could get that rainy day fund and they could pay off the house and, and, and they could have enough, just enough, a cushion, so they didn't have to worry. Little, just a little bit more so they could be self-sufficient. Isn't that what we are taught as Americans? Be self-sufficient. But working instead of resting, working instead of trusting God, was the reason they were sent into exile in the first place. You saw that in verse 18 that we read. To rest instead of work for one full day was a matter of trusting God. There, were, there was nothing wrong with making a profit for selling food, but not on the Lord's day. It was a violation of his command, and it was, it was not good for them at all. So what does that mean for you if you have to work on Sunday? We don't believe the Sabbath laws still apply in the same ways, but what does it mean for us? We too were created to work six days and rest on seven. So what does that, what does that mean for us? Can you not work on Sunday? No, Jesus is our final Sabbath rest, and we can rest in him. But should we consider whether working seven days is actually good for us? And does, are we doing it because it helps us depend on God or because we want to be self-sufficient? To rest instead of work when we're supposed to rest is a matter of not trusting God. We don't want to violate God's Sabbath principle for us. But what about just not for work? What about for your own salvation? How many of us hear a message like this about keeping the rules, and, and, and we're tempted to think, oh man, okay, 
Maybe I really am justified by the deeds of the law. Maybe I really am justified by works and, and not by grace. Friends, that's not resting in Jesus. The whole Sabbath day and the principle was leading towards that. Finally, this is our one true spiritual rest. And the people were supposed to take it in and enjoy it and, and, and rest so that they might find their final rest in him. And so Nehemiah warns them and rebukes them in 17 and 18. And then he takes action. He institutes reforms. And friends, as the governor, he has the right to do this. He has the right to say, to, he has the right to take Tobias things out of the temple. He has the right as a governor of Persia to do that. God had given the government, even then, the sword. And so here he comes. He takes it out. He has the right. He, he, he comes in and he says, look, if you keep spending the night on the wall so you can get an advantage and sell on the Lord's day, I'm going to lay hands on you. He's saying, I'm going to arrest you. I'm going to put you in prison. And as the governor, he had the right to do that. Now, some pastors have used this as an excuse to abuse their congregations and to, to speak poorly to them or, or to cajole them. I, I grew up in, uh, in something called fundamentalism, and I remember pastors all the time throwing pulpits down and throwing pitchers of water and berating people. Maybe that gives you a little insight into who I am, and uh, I, I don't know. But this is, God did not write Nehemiah and the memoirs in order to tell pastors they could do this. No, pastors have the, uh, don't have the power of the sword, but the power of the word only to persuade and to lead and to bring along. The government has the power of the sword, and it should be used rightly, and that's what Nehemiah is doing. Nehemiah is telling them, and, and, and it's confusing because the government and the religion is mixed at this time, and so it's a little confusing for us, but as the governor, he has the right to say, no, these are the laws of the land, and as the shadows come on the walls, the shadows come on the doors, and the shadows come, and the darkness descends, Nehemiah says, close the doors, we're not going to give them a foothold here so they can break the Sabbath. And I don't think Nehemiah is trying to earn his salvation here, but he's looking to God. Nehemiah knows there's a, a day of reckoning and accounting, and so that's why he prays to God after he institutes these reforms. He prays and he says, please, based on your steadfast mercy and love, remember me. Nehemiah knows there's a day of reckoning, a day of accounting, there's a judgment day coming. And similarly, pastors are told they will give an account for those that are entrusted to them and to their care. And friends, it's frightening to think that I will be judged on the last day for the way I cared for you or haven't cared for you. I know many of the ways I lack as a shepherd, but God knows all the ways that I lack. And all I can do is say, oh my God, spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. And friends, this is the motivation for keeping the Sabbath and tuning our hearts to sing his praise. This is the motivation here, his steadfast love. According to his steadfast love, he gave you the day of rest, Nehemiah tells them. Because you are a person and not a machine, dear friend. You too need a day of rest. 
He gave you a day of worship because you are an image bearer and not a number on some factory line. He gave you a day of restorative fellowship because you belong in community and not in isolation. He created you and made you both for work and rest. And in the greatness of his steadfast love, you will find the motivation for keeping his laws. It's, the, it's, it's, it's in his steadfast love that you will find the motivation to persevere to the end. Not fear of the judgment day, not just fear of the judgment day will keep you on the straight and narrow, but the fear of the Lord and his steadfast love and loving kindness. You will find motivation to fight your sin and live in the image of your creator. Friends, there are no hard and fast rules for a New Testament Christians on what they can and can't do on the Sabbath day, or excuse me, the Lord's day on Sunday. But friends, we do neglect the good gift of rest to our own peril. Uh, in, in seminary, uh, this is just one way to do it. I'm not saying we did it perfectly, but when I was in seminary, um, at, at one point, uh, we were working so hard that I, uh, I asked my wife, do you still love me? Because I wasn't sure. Uh, and she looked at me in the eyes and said, I love you, but I don't really like you very much right now. And it's because I'd been working a lot. I had been working a full-time job and going to seminary full-time uh, and, and um, working at the church as well. And uh, we just, we didn't, we weren't resting together. We weren't, we weren't, I, I was not loving my wife well. And I can't remember how we came to this, but I just decided that, um, we decided together that if I couldn't get it done in six days, what needed to be done, that it wasn't worth doing. Now, I didn't flunk out of school. I also wasn't a straight A student. But f friends, there's something in your life and my life that we're attempted to give too much attention to. So when it comes to this principle of rest, how, how are we re-reflecting that our just that we are at peace with God, that we Jesus has won our final rest. One way to do that is, is to take a day like Sunday and use it only for worship and rest. If you if you can't get it done in six days, maybe it doesn't need to be done. There, there's something in your life that's tempting you to give too much attention to. You can think of it right now. It's it's in your mind. I don't know what it is. And I'm not saying this is an excuse to be lazy. Maybe the reason you didn't get it done in six days is because you didn't pay enough attention to it. But there is something for all of us, that work project, that relationship, that term paper, that tempts us to give more attention to it than it deserves. What is that for you? And let the greatness of God's steadfast love motivate you to say no. I will not work or worry about this anymore. By God's grace, I will not work or worry about this anymore. God wanted the people to give attention and not neglect his house because he created his people for worship. And then he gave them a place to worship. God wanted his people to give attention to rest because he created them to need him, to need rest. 
and for worship. And then he gave him a day just for that. God commands us out of the greatness of his steadfast love for you. He commands this to rest in him. Continual renewal due to the continual sin comes from the love of the Lord. He wants to renew you. He wants to refresh you by by rest and by worship. He's not willing to give up on you. That's what we read in Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Why? How can that be possible? Because Jesus won your rest. God of very God came down and clothed himself in human flesh was born as a servant into a a dirty cattle stall. There's blood on the ground. This is not a silent night, friends. It was ugly and hard, and he was born into ridicule. But he was born so that he might take your ridicule, so that he could give you rest. Because the king of kings didn't come down only to be born in a major. He came to live and die in your place and rise again, conquering sin, death, and hell. That very sin that keeps you up at night or that you can't rest from, he died in your place to give you rest and rose again, conquering that sin for you. So you not only need to address the sin and institute reform, you need to pray and rest because this is your God, your King who did this in your place. You need to rest in his steadfast love. Tend to the rest. And lastly, pray in hope. In verse 23 In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves." Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. And he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him, even him, to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Hornonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus, I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times And for the first fruits, remember me, oh my God, for good. Friends, from human perspective, the community was in danger. And so was the hope of the Messiah, really, from the human perspective. If they continued to intermarry and and have their hearts turned toward other gods, then they would bring themselves under the curse of Gint. So in order to persuade them that they should not continue to sin this way, Nehemiah makes a spectacle. 
Did you notice it? He confronts them. He curses them. He pulls out their hair. He beats them. And he makes them take an oath. Just to tag on to my point previously, um, we're, we're, never, we're not told if Nehemiah is right or wrong here. He's not condemned for doing this anywhere I, I know of in the scripture. Uh, he was the governor, so that's one thing. He had the power of the sword. And, and part of, I, I don't know for sure, but part of me thinks that uh, what he was doing was, was, was an image, sort of like when in, in Ruth at the gate, when uh, Boaz and, and the other man, you know, I can't remember how exactly it went, but like, like swap spit or they like hit each other in the face with the shoe. There's, there's some sort of image going on there that, that represents a, a covenant kind of a thing. And, and, and who knows exactly if Nehemiah should have done this or not, but it's, he is taking the, the sin seriously, the covenant seriously. And to, to pull out someone's beard is a disgrace. And these people were disgracing the covenant by disobeying it. They were, they, they, were, they were bringing the curse on themselves. And so, you know, maybe in just a vivid way, he's, he, he is, he's making these actions. We don't know for sure. We do know Christians are, are not to do this. There's a time and a place for Christians to defend themselves and the most vulnerable and people. But we must always recall Jesus' words. In the Sermon on the Mount, if, if, if someone strikes you, turn the other cheek. We know that's in a, a personal one-on-one um, encounter. And yet he says this is, this is to be a Christian's demeanor. Oftentimes when Christians had their property taken from them, all they could do was submit. Sometimes Paul used his citizenship to, 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 to reclaim his freedom, but, but oftentimes he just submitted to what the government did. And so this is a complicated situation that needs wisdom. Do we, do we ever act in violence? We, we're not called to act in violence, to, to advance the kingdom of Christ. We're called to take the word with love to people. Solomon or Nehemiah not only makes a spectacle in verse 25, but in verse 26, he, he talks about the spectacle of Solomon, who was a great king who, who chose wisdom. God said, you can have anything you want. And Solomon said, I, I want wisdom to rule your people. This was the kind of man he was. But even a great man with great wisdom and uh, that actually gave him great wealth and fame, he was dearly loved by God, but even Solomon turned his heart from God when he gave up following God's commands. And it's a, it's a picture, it's picturesque of if Solomon, the great king who asked for wisdom over wealth and, and, and fame, if, if he could turn his heart disobeying God's commands, then what about us? And soon after Solomon, the kingdom splits, and the kings of Israel and Judah are mostly evil kings, and they allowed the worship of other gods in. Yet God's good hand was on the people by giving them leaders like Nehemiah to call them back. Come on back, guys. Come back. Give up your sins and follow him according to his steadfast love. 
So the first, for the third and fourth time in Nehemiah, he not only calls out their sin and institutes worship, he, he prays. And he prays for God to remember. The last recorded thing that happens in the Old Testament is this right here. Chronologically, Nehemiah is the last book. This is the last thing that happens between the Old Testament and the New Testament, chronologically. And the last words recorded are, remember me, oh my God, for good. Friends, in the end, even the best human leaders like Nehemiah are not enough to save us. Ezra ends with him pulling out his own hair. Nehemiah ends with him pulling out the hair of other people. In the fit of frustration and disappointment, we pull out our hair, and even the best leaders in in Christianity are not good enough to save us. And we certainly cannot save ourselves. If we're going to be saved from our sins, then God will have to remember us for good. And if you were reading in the years between the Old and New Testaments, and if you were reading Nehemiah's memoirs, and you came to this section towards the end in the anticlimax, you might have thought, has God forsaken me? Has God forgotten us? Has God forgotten his people? But if you held on for a little while longer, you would get the book of Matthew. And the angel shows up and speaks to Joseph. And he tells Joseph, as Joseph is considering the things that Mary has just told him, that she's pregnant, but she's never had sex with anybody, I promise, but I'm pregnant, and and an angel told me, and as he's considering whether he should put Mary away, or I mean, this is Christmas, guys, and he's considering whether he should divorce her, put her away, and not, not go through with the wedding, an angel comes to Joseph and says, Joseph. Son of David, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. Friends, God answered Nehemiah's prayer with Jesus. God had not forgotten. And he's calling you and I back this Christmas season in love, back to the ordinary means of grace, like sitting here on Sunday morning and hearing the old, old story and calling us back calling us back to rest in him and rest in his steadfast love, attuning our heart to sing his praise. Why? Because he has not forgotten you. Remember me, oh my God, for good. And in Jesus, you are remembered. Let's pray. Father, I ask that in your kindness you would use this text and these words Tune our hearts to sing your praise. Give us rest by your steadfast love. Help us to hope in you. In Jesus' name.
Amen.